So today we had such a difficult and important conversation with um, Rachel Bartholomew, who is the founder and CEO of High Ivy, which grew out of her incredibly complex and painful history with cancer and the treatment and the resulting impact of those treatments. And what was so striking, Alyssa, is she's telling this very sad story and you're so, you don't feel bad for her. She's so amazing and strong and confident and thoughtful. And that she did this when she was on bed rest, recovering from a hysterectomy at the age of 28. Look, people in that entrepreneurial space, uh, I have seen through all of our interviews, really, they want to have purpose. And most of them bring a personal story to the table uh, to provide that purpose. So this is really an incredible story. uh, And I can't wait to speak to her. We talk about this theme all the time, but what Rachel really points out, and we hear this over and over again, is just how many aspects of a woman's life are affected by condition or disease or treatment. It is not just physiological, it's psychological, it's emotional. In this case, affects your fertility, your ability to, your options in terms of how you wanna build a family. We didn't talk about economics, but that's always a big part of it. Lost work, um, expensive hospital bills. So it really is so, important to realize how interconnected all these things are when it, as it relates to women's health, whether we're talking about pregnancy or menopause or cervical cancer. No question about it. I think what moved me so much is the age at which she was uh, diagnosed with her issues. Um, because, you know, we always think of some of these vaginal problems, particularly atrophy or painful sex, as old older person problems rather than young person problems. And what's so distinct about these issues occurring in a young woman is that the changes come on quite suddenly and overnight rather than as gradual changes through time where you almost have a little bit of forewarning and uh, a little time to prepare. So let's hear her story. Welcome to the business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirl. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so excited to have our guest tonight, Rachel Bartholomew, founder and CEO of High Ivy, who is focused on an entirely new approach to pelvic health. Welcome. Thanks for having me, ladies. It's great to have you. Every entrepreneur that we have on the podcast has an origin story. Um, Yours is interesting. I'd love you to share it um, with our listeners so they know, again, how much passion all our entrepreneurs on the show bring to the businesses and and ultimately the missions that they're, they're focused on. 
Yeah. So uh, my origin story is an interesting one. I come from an entrepreneurial family. So entrepreneurship and risk taking is kind of in my blood. Um, I had a company before this, which was not in healthcare whatsoever. It was actually an automotive, which uh, probably equally as tough in terms of just that male stigma and, you know, trying to break through and sell a product to a bunch of men when I'm a woman. Um, it, was, it was an interesting process. I learned so much. Um, I exited that company. I sold off the IP. Uh, I took a break from entrepreneurship. I said I was going to take like at least a year and not start a company. And I really failed miserably at that. I think it took me about nine months uh, before, you know, I was thinking about my next idea. But I went back into the workforce, uh, was actually running an incubator. So helping other companies start up uh, and did that for about a year left that. And uh, two weeks later, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. So I'm 28 years old. Um, in Canada, we go through the process pretty quickly. Like our healthcare system's pretty slow, but, um, in this case, it really did its job. And I would say within a month and a half, I was on the operating table. So I had a radical hysterectomy and lymphadectomy, I think it's called, um, where they take out the, the lymph nodes. And, uh, I was on bed rest after that surgery connected with all these women on Facebook who had went through gynecological cancer uh, and went through hysterectomies, realized that there was this like 84-year-old technology that I had actually used 11 years prior for a completely different situation, uh, still hypertonic pelvic floor, um, called a vaginal dilator. And uh, realized nothing had happened since 11 years prior and then, you know, another 84 plus odd years and said, okay, I'm an innovator. I'm a, I can kind of take a look at this. So I started my, uh, secondary research, moved into my primary research all while on bed rest. Um, and when I started my radiation treatments, I just, I looked at it as an opportunity to keep my brain away from the chaos um, and also get in front of as many doctors as I could. So uh, with radiation, you're in the ward every single day. And I just use that as an opportunity to, to pitch the doctors. So I created a really crappy uh, designed product on PowerPoint and uh, was essentially pitching that to the radiologists um, who were like, oh, that's really interesting. And then they shared that across the pods. It got back to my oncologist who called me into the office and I'm like, oh no, she's calling me in. Like, what's going on? Am I dying? <laughs> oh gosh. And, yeah. <laughs> Next thing you know, she's like, I heard you're creating this product. And I was like, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like, you know, the patient validation side, the um, clinician validation side. And then shortly after I did my first um, kind of business pitch uh, in, in December of 2019 post-treatment and won that. And I kind of knew I had the business side of it. So wow. what a story. Holy cow. <laughs> so, you know, for our listeners, let me sort of uh, simple down the very complex issues that you've been through. So first of all, it's so important to recognize that, you know, your history of having cervical cancer typically hits people at a very young age. So 
28 is not an unusual age, but, you know, so difficult. Uh, you went through a radical hysterectomy, which means that your cervix, your uterus, and a lot of the supportive tissues be around those organs were removed. And thankfully, it looks like you're doing great. What is not removed typically are the ovaries. So luckily, you're still producing estrogen. But, you know, radiation causes changes, particularly to the vagina, that can cause the vagina to become very narrow, very short, scarred, and even almost closed off, making intercourse or typical day-to-day comfort really challenging. I applaud you because, you know, I have seen so many women through the years in my practice who come through having had this type of experience, and they are literally handed one plastic oblong dilator and just said, here, use this with no explanation, no real didactic. And, you know, a one size is not fits all in this, uh, in this realm. So uh, I just wanted to set the stage with that little bit of background. And now you can tell us so much more about your company. Yeah. Thanks for that, Rachel. Do you want to say any additional pieces? Well, I have so many questions and I always love how <clears throat> Alyssa takes these very complex ideas so that people can understand. I mean, you've lived through this. So now the terms don't feel overwhelming, but I imagine they did um, at the beginning. So there, there's so many pieces to this. You built a business from the hospital, which is so brave and really about turning lemons into lemonades. I do want to touch at some point on whether or not your doctor and now doctors today talk to you about options in terms of um, fertility or family planning or anything like that? Or had they warned you at all about the changes to your vagina that you might experience that Alyssa suggested? What what kind of preparation or education did you have there? Yeah. So thank you, Alyssa, for the context, because, um, you know, one of the things that you go through when you go through this is the decision making so quick. Um, it's often without all of the information at the table or it's slides through as you're going through. Um, Before I started High Ivy, I actually almost started a company about the decision-making process in cancer because there's so many pieces to the puzzle and, you know, different treatment pathways and the way that you increase your percentages of, of success and survival and do they outweigh Unfortunately, what I'm starting to notice, what doctors um, going through treatment, like they're just honing in on this. I want you to survive and less about the quality of life after the fact. So I lost my ability to have children by a week. Um, I was supposed to go in for an egg uh, collection and they would not postpone my surgery one extra week. Um, my ovaries were completely toasted. Um, so I am in surgical menopause at 28 years old. Um, and that comes with its own issues, uh, including atrophy on top of the stenosis. So that's been uh, a fun time. And then honest to God, I, I look at, so I was just in surgery on Friday. <laughs> so we're filming this on Monday. Um, my bladder has been completely destroyed. Um, my colon and uh, intestinal tract has been completely destroyed. Uh, you know, sexual functions pretty much non-existent. And, um, you know, 
these are all things that unfortunately it's like, well, you're living, right? And it's like, well, at what cost at my quality of life as now a 31-year-old who cannot go anywhere without peeing her pants or going to the number two in my pants um, and all of these other things like not being able to have children and all of that. So it's a lot. Um, and I think it's something that I wish there was more done up front to understand all of these implications. But I know that also it's not necessarily, you know, the doctor's job. It's their job to look at pathology and, and oncology and, and make the decisions based off of, you know, the flow charts that exist for it. Um, and in Canada, we don't have the same patient advocacy up front. So I wish that I knew that patient advocates existed that could have helped me through that process um, and really have a, a full understanding of, you know, I lost a huge significant impact on my quality of life for a 15% increase in my survival rate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's hard because now I'm dealing with vulva cancer, early stage vulva cancer caused by the same thing, HPV. Um, and am I constantly fighting a battle against HPV? I it's I I look at it all as was it really worth it? I don't know. I'm still fighting the same battle, just in a different way. So how are you helping so many other women who may be facing some or all of what you've dealt with? with your product, your company, your platform. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what I've created is an enhanced version of the dilator. And essentially, we're using a combination of a number of different therapeutics, as well as sensors to be able to track and monitor progress. Um, and so what we're doing is we're using multiple air chambers that inflate at various sizes based off of how your vaginal canal is shaped and where the stenosis and atrophy lies. Um, and essentially, we inflate uh, to what feels comfortable uh, for the patient. So they're fully in control. Subsequently, we also provide heating therapy. So we go up to about 42 degrees. It's like a heating pad for you know other areas of your body. Um, and we notice natural lubrication, a better tolerance of the dilation therapy, ultimately a better experience. And we really looked at, you know, the straight static dilator and said, how can we make this a better ergonomic experience? Uh, so we really changed the shape of it, allowed patients to feel more in control. Um, Subsequently, we added in a couple different sensors. We've noticed a number of different data correlations in our patient uh, population that are showing that we're leading towards some sort of diagno diagnostics measurement capabilities, but something to still be examined uh, throughout our clinical trials. Um, and then, yeah, we have a patient app that uh, we collect self-reported subjective data with. We pair that together with that objective sensor data and uh, that's sent over to our clinician software that OBGYNs and uh, PTs, pelvic floor physios use, uh, essentially to remote patient monitor our uh, thing. Our Amazing. Are patients getting uh, like biofeedback from uh, and progress along the way? Uh, or is it simply the, the clinician who reviews the data and lets them know whether they're having progress? 
Yeah, yeah. So we track all of the measurement values. We show them as is. So you can see the change in the measurement values uh, until FDA allows us to actually say that this is what this actually means, um, which we're on progress for, but, you know, is a long haul in terms of clinical evidence and, and that type of thing. Um, we just present that that progress in terms of the change in value and allow the doctor to intervene and, and let the women know. So here's today's hot flash. We're talking about HPV, human papillomavirus, a typically sexually transmitted infection, extraordinarily common. HPV, per the CDC, is thought to be responsible for more than 90% of anal and cervical cancers and about 70% of vaginal and vulva cancers and more than 60% of penile cancers. So many questions. Everything you say, a thousand questions spin um, through my head. So where are you in the development? Obviously, you're still in the FDA process. And how, um, when you are available, how will you be available? Yeah, great question. So we are currently in uh, two clinical trials. So we're in a clinical trial with endometriosis patients as well as cancer patients. Uh, so we do both uh, pelvic-based cancers, so gynecological as well as colorectal and anal cancers, um, because a lot of them feel the same stenosis uh, impact, unfortunately, from radiation. Uh, so those two are going through. Uh, our hopes is, you know, uh, mid to late next year, we'll be going for Health Canada and uh, FDA approval. And essentially, it is a prescription-first device. So yeah. a pelvic floor physio or OBGYN has to clear you for use of the device. We include them throughout that process because we know that adherence rates are so low on you know dilators and continuing even with um, this therapy from home over the years. Uh, we wanted to make sure that the doctors were always at the table um, when working through this device. So they monitor how you're progressing and um, put in essentially a treatment protocol into the device that you go home with. You know, one of the things that does keep people engaged in these tedious programs, and you're absolutely right, people fall off the wagon all the time because it's a chore, um, is to have these frequent visits uh, because number one, monitoring progress, whether it's biofeedback or through your clinician relaying that information, really gives people hope that they're actually working towards something. Um, but the frequent visits definitely helps with uh, compliance. So that's great. Um, do the, does the device come in multiple sizes or it just can expand or deflate based on pump, pumping in this air? Because this is incredibly interesting and quite novel. You know, we're used to using serial dilators that start super skinny and then they get thicker and thicker. Uh, and longer and bigger and wider. And uh, so one one device is pretty neat. Yeah, for sure. So we start um, kind of at the lowest size of this is, um, I forget which one this is, uh, one of the the main ones that I'm given out of the, the yeah. pelvic therapist's office. So we start at the smallest size. Uh, that's the size of our, essentially the shaft of our device. And then the inflation goes up uh, even past the largest size here uh, in each of those balloons. But we we really tell the patient, um, you increase that inflation, we set the balloons so that if you could only put in one versus the two, uh, you set that all up. And then essentially you just inflate till when it feels snug, uh, but you don't feel any burning or any sort of sharp pain or anything that could uh, you know feel painful for the, the patient. So you're in the midst of these clinical studies. 
what in a perfect world would the claims be? What are you hoping to be able to deliver, um, which obviously will have a big impact on who's buying it? Yeah, yeah. So I'll share what I can share from what's public on clinicaltrial.gov. But, um, you know, with endometriosis, it, it's a really complex problem, right? Because we're not, we're not solving endometriosis. We're really helping with just the management of all the things that endometriosis patients go through. So the, the large piece of that is chronic pelvic pain, but also managing and looking at things like site-specific. So we're doing a 16-point uh, pelvic exam as well as inflammatory markers. So looking at how we actually impact um, kind of that, that vaginal canal in an objective way. Uh, and then in cancer, you know, our, our ultimate goal, we're going through the tolerance and usability and feasibility right now. Uh, but moving, we already have our big RCT kind of lined up um, to look at how do we increase length, depth, uh, circumference, um, and that type of thing for patients with vaginal stenosis. So hopefully a great change in it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> and are you trying to um, demonstrate endpoints with reduction of pain, improved lubrication, improved ability to engage in intimacy? Are those clinical endpoints? Yeah, so pain is one of them, which is is complex, right? Because pain is also, unfortunately, a very subjective thing. Uh, but we also are looking at, you know, the female sexual function index, uh, looking at adherence, looking at use of uh, pain medication and ER visits and a couple more of those kind of health economic uh, measurements. Um, a lot of the stuff that just hasn't been properly collected in kind of this area of, of medicine. Yeah. So just for edification, the female sexual function index is a validated questionnaire. So it's, you know, valid no matter if you're doing it on various studies, you can compare apples to apples, but it does give pretty valid information regarding, you know, satisfaction and pain and arousal. So this is a really good measurement tool to see how your device is working. Um, does your site provide counseling as well? Um, and are is it a telehealth type of site, or would you would you say there's any in person uh, presence? Yeah, so we do we do initially see it being an in person um, meetup with with the doctor, so that they can actually go through that education piece that is so important. Like we said, um, making sure that they're setting the device up appropriately uh, right off of the bat, and they know what to expect. And I think that's the biggest piece is like women are like. I don't know if I should be feeling burning versus just a snug feeling. And do I want to push it there? Because we're talking about something that's painful right out of the get-go, right? It's it's not the easiest process. So we want to see uh, the patients in office first. As we move towards gathering more clinical evidence, uh, our hopes is to go towards over-the-counter um, and really working towards patients being able to do this on their own with some virtual therapy options uh, to work through it and gather that data and then remote patient monitor that data. So in addition to the fact that you took your personal um, experience and are trying to make it better for other people, you also have communicated to folks the value of this and you um, raised money earlier this year. Uh, what do you think was the driver? You know, we've been in this space for a long time. It's very difficult to raise money when you're talking about, you know, unpleasant, certainly unpleasant and uncomfortable um, topics and 
you know, I've heard both sides that, you know, investors want the entrepreneur to tell their personal story or they really don't want the entrepreneur to tell their personal story. Um, what were you selling, if you will, or what was your approach to talk about how big this opportunity is? Because while it's such important work to get money, people have to believe they're going to make money. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And I think it, it was a tough decision because, um, you know, early on, we had to make the decision to go medical device first and go through the the long pathway of clinical evidence and going through regulatory approvals and, you know, figuring out our indications and and what that looks like. And so I made that decision very early on versus going direct to consumer. And I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of investors that we're like, I would invest in you right away if you went direct to consumer. And I'm like, well, you know, it's it's not the direction I want to take. And part of it was looking back at my own story and going, would I want to go, you know, to a sex shop and look for a solution? Or would I want my doctor to be providing the solution to me when I was diagnosed with cancer? Right. And, you know, let me also make it very clear that dilators and particularly your device, are not only for people who've had cancer. Yeah. I mean, they are absolutely used for, like you said, endometriosis. Uh, for sure, people have had other surgery, whether it's vaginal or pelvic, that might affect their, uh, you know, vagina anatomy. Uh, certainly for the atrophic vagina, the vagina that has not been exposed to enough estrogen and so just has uh, shortening and narrowing for that uh for that reason. So, you know, really there is more widespread use for this. Lastly, you know, the incontinence issue, whether it's due to radiation or in spite of that, whether it's urinary or fecal in nature, you know, this is obviously very, very influential on quality of life. So I can see this really being quite broad-based. Yeah. And I think part of that, you know, discussion with investors is, I unfortunately have to spend a lot of time walking them through the numbers and walking them through the market. And it's, they will go, you know, one in three women have pelvic health issues. Yeah, maybe they're not directly, you know, hypertonic pelvic floor issues, but okay, let's crunch the numbers. And so we pull up the numbers of how many women are in the US and then like, okay, there's this many indications. Oh yeah, that is one in three women. And it's like, thank you. I know how to do math. <laughs> it's very, it's so funny you say that. It's, uh, you know, all these, whenever we're in this discussion, these discussions with investors and we talk about these enormous numbers, like 1.1 billion women will be in menopause in 2025. You know, you still have to prove that it's a business. And today, I think it was today, there was an article in the New York Times that basically said half of the population has a clitoris. How come we're not doing any studies around <laughs> it? So, um, and, and that was in the New York Times. It wasn't in uh, some secondary publications. So what you're saying and doing and, and in educating the investors as well as um, potential users is really, really so important. It isn't just making sure doctors are on board, which is critically important. And it isn't just making sure the product is useful and usable for the target. You also have to do all this other heavy lifting to say, this is a business. Oh yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. And, you know, I, the way that I get around the uncomfortableness in the room, like, I mean, I bring my, my dilator and then my product and I'm pointing things at investors that make them uncomfortable, but you know, it's, it's, I, I always start with my story and 
I know that there's kind of that hot take of like, do women need to lead with a personal story to be taken seriously? And, you know, I think for me, leading with that story uh, unlocks a level of this honesty and like rawness and vulnerability that allows us to eventually get to a point where I will have investors say, my wife has this or my daughter's experiencing this and they can openly share that. And that's how I connect. And a lot of those investors that came on board have those personal connections with it. Um, and I really appreciate them for that because they really live through that quality of life piece that I'm told again and again is like, well, is that really worth it? It's not life or death, right? Look, it's all perspective. Great. Yep. <laughs> okay, just I have to ask, how do you pronounce is it High Ivy? And how did you pick that name? Yeah, so um, the H-Y actually comes from hysterectomy. Okay. Because that's what I was on bed rest for when I made the, the product, right? So I was initially targeting hysterectomies and then realized it was way more than that. Yeah. Um, and then the Ivy leaf is actually um, in the shape of a uterus. And then we use the vines as the fallopian tube. So it's like kind of okay. like a play on words slash, you know, woman thing. So very yeah. cool. In in gynecology, we're very used to terming all anatomic parts as either pieces of fruit or maybe nuts. So yeah. uh glad yeah. we uh, graduated to some plant life. <laughs> well we will be watching you and then cheering you on every step of the way. We want to thank you so much, first of all, for sharing such an unbelievably personal story, but it makes so much sense now to see where you have landed. And uh, we wish you all the best and so much success. Yeah, thanks so much, ladies. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business.